Hello, and welcome to the first episode of ICO 41, a 41-minute podcast of initial coin offering analysis at least once per week. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This being the first episode, let me cover the what, why, who, and how of this podcast. In case you stumble upon this podcast and know nothing about initial coin offerings, also known as ICOs, they're a method of funding projects and companies, and the ICO is generally based on the issuance of a digital currency, coin, or most commonly, a token. Through the sale of these digital objects, a company or a project seeks to raise funds to develop their idea. Now, this is similar to Indiegogo or Kickstarter, except that there's a digital token of some kind and generally a network to participate in. But as you're going to find out in this podcast, this method of fundraising has been, in some cases, ridiculously successful. This podcast will cover a couple of ICOs each week. The first one will be an upcoming ICO with detailed and in-depth analysis, and the second will be for an ICO that has been around for a while, and it'll consist of a quick check-in to see how they're doing, since most ICOs have tokens on exchanges that continue to be traded for months and years after their ICO event. Now, please understand a couple of things. First, this is a podcast focused on ICO analysis. If you're looking for a thorough treatment of topics like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and blockchain, all of which, by the way, form the underlying platforms for these ICOs, please check out our sister podcast, Blockchain 41. Secondly, and importantly, this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and is not, nor it should be regarded as investment advice or a recommendation for any particular course of action. We're here to inform and educate, not suggest. Let's move on to the why of this podcast. Why do we care? Why do we care about ICOs? Well, in case you haven't been paying attention lately, the world of startups and finance, ICOs are disrupting the financial and startup sector in ways that we have not seen before. Tens of millions of dollars are sometimes raised, literally in minutes. As an example, let's take November 2016, the Gollum Project. They raised 820,000 Ether tokens. At the time, that was worth about $8.6 million in the first 29 minutes. Now that's amazing enough, but consider this. The price of Ether is now around $340 per coin. So the present value of what the Gollum Project raised about a year ago is more than $278 million. Now, it's stories like that which lead us to believe that this phenomenon needs some thoughtful analysis. Let's talk about who. The first few episodes of this podcast will just be me, Owen Scott, and you, the listener. If there's some time and we're able to do it, we will certainly be bringing some guests representing some of these ICOs so that you can hear from them yourselves. Now, why me? Why Owen Scott? Well, first, understand that I'm not a longstanding cryptocurrency expert. And secondly, I'm not a professional financial analyst. One thing that helps, though, is that I have over 30 years of fairly deep and wide technology experience, as well as about 30 years of doing my own due diligence when it comes to investing in general. But what really allows me to deliver this to you is that I seem to have this unique ability to dive very deeply into the morass of any given technical subject and then climb back out of that muck and report somewhat coherently to normal people like yourself who just don't have the time or the inclination, perhaps, to investigate at that level. And this is what I intend to do in this podcast and its sister podcast, Blockchain 41. I can tell you this much. 
In my fascination with cryptocurrency, the blockchain, the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and finally ICOs, I have plenty to share with you, and I promise to do it efficiently. Why you? Well, if you're a person who's curious about this relatively new phenomenon of raising money, or or maybe you're an investor who wants to experiment a little bit with these ICOs but don't know where to start, per se, this podcast will probably help you. Or if you're just curious about the projects that are underway and proposed and how they intend to disrupt these industries with this new blockchain technology, then there's a good chance you'll enjoy this podcast as well. And again, if you're really after the whole story starting at the very beginning, by all means, feel free to check out Blockchain 41. And finally, the how. Well, this is a brand new, quite focused podcast delivering specific information about ICO offerings. Each week, we're going to spend 41 minutes discussing two ICO offerings in a fairly strict format that's designed to supply you with critical information about the offering and the project without much rambling. It's designed to be a filter for your benefit. And so based on this essential information, you can then decide to investigate further or do whatever you like to do with that information. For each of the two ICOs, we're going to provide the details and resources on our website, ico41.com, as well as our YouTube channel. Now let's get started. Our brand new upcoming ICO for this week is... Atlant, A-T-L-A-N-T, which is launching their ICO on September 7th, 2017, and this has all the markings of a successful ICO as far as I can tell. In fact, I'd be quite surprised if this ICO didn't knock it out of the park and maybe even set some records. And the main reason for this is because of a variety of factors which we're going to dive deeply into. First, the size of the vertical market that the ICO plans to disrupt. And then a professionally planned cadence of activity leading up to that ICO. The fact that there's something to actually log into, a viable network, operationally speaking. The white paper itself, which is always important to read carefully. And then the team behind the project. All in all, the team so far has hit all the marks that go into a solid ICO. Now this is episode one, so I should explain that each week we're going to be covering 14 bullet points that go into a serious analysis of an ICO. Now these 14 points are found on our website, ico41.com, but we'll start with them right now. The first is the concept. This project takes on the real estate market. The first point is that the real estate market worldwide is the largest market on the planet, dwarfing all others, with around $1.4 trillion in transactions on an annual basis. And this ICO takes on two fundamental components of that very large market. First, real estate transactions. Now, as we all know, these are opaque, notably complex, terribly inefficient to begin with. Particularly, the ability to sell partial shares in a real estate asset. And the second is peer-to-peer rentals. Now, specifically, we know the likes of Airbnb and VRBO and other peer-to-peer rental exchanges. Well, this project intends to use certain aspects of blockchain technology combined with traditional aspects of real estate transactions to improve these processes and, most importantly, drastically reduce fees. And the ultimate question for all ICOs is this. Simply, what is preventing the solution 
to these problems now without a blockchain platform? Or put another way, how will blockchain help in this case? So with respect to the first, that is monetizing and exchanging partial shares of a given real estate property, the main vehicle that exists for this now, we should understand, is the Real Estate Investment Trust, the REIT. Now, as you probably know, this is a vehicle that bundles properties together into a tradable instrument, and it allows an investor to invest in partial shares of real estate through this REIT mechanism. Now, it's possible that this mechanism can be used for a single property, but it isn't. And it isn't because it's prohibitively expensive to list REITs on existing exchanges. In fact, the registration of an REIT can cost up to a million dollars a year. So you can see how this would be pretty much impossible for the majority of real estate assets, even large ones. But the use of a distributed blockchain ledger hosted on a secure network made of peers will go a long way to removing this barrier to entry because exchanges that run on blockchain don't necessarily need to charge prohibitive fees for the inclusion of data points such as properties on their exchanges. And not only that, but the legal, contractual, and administrative information that goes into a real estate transaction can be made immutable and trusted by using crypto technology that cannot be reversed. So, this provides some great efficiency as well as transparency in transacting real estate. So concepts like escrow, for instance, can be built into smart contracts. And machine-readable and human-readable contract equivalents known as Ricardian contracts can also introduce major efficiencies into the process. And all of that leads to lower fees. In fact, the projected fee to list, tokenize, and allow trading of tokenized real estate assets is set at about 7% to start in this platform. And participants in the platform can vote to modify the fees if required. Now let's consider the second point, peer-to-peer -peer rental platforms. Now we're all familiar with Airbnb and VRBO and they're already disrupting the traditional hospitality market to a great degree, essentially by making it easy for just about anybody to rent their real estate property to just about anybody. But operationally, we've seen that there's some dreadful inefficiencies in these models, and they're only mitigated by some very high transaction fees. For instance, between all the parties in an Airbnb transaction, as much as 15% of the transaction can go to fees of the administrators of the service, Airbnb, for instance. And for other services like Expedia, it's up to 30%. Now, the use of blockchain can reduce these fees by using things like built-in escrow and an efficient method of arbitration for disputes. Now, the sponsors of this ICO claim that transactional fees for peer-to-peer -peer rentals on a blockchain-based platform might be lowered as much as 90% to go from as high as 30% of the transaction down to as low as 3% of the transaction. And so that's the concept. Let's talk about the company for a moment. 
The webpage at the Atlant ICO specifically states that there is a legal structure with a company named Ten Sigma registered in the British Virgin Islands. And as we know, the BVI is an offshore jurisdiction. The details about that filing are really only available through a paid search. Now, whether or not this is a red flag is something that I'm not particularly qualified to comment on. All I can say is that a lot of ICOs use this structure, and I imagine it's mainly due to the tax advantages in countries like the BVI, which is pretty important for a startup. When they were pressed on the forums, the managers of Atlant offered up a couple of physical addresses, one in New York City and one in Moscow. Maybe more importantly than the company structure or the location is the team. Now, I would submit, in many cases for these ICOs, a careful examination of the team itself is important. And there's much more information about the Atlant team. The team consists of four executive business leaders with a respectable amount of experience at enterprise levels, as far as I can tell. The advisory team is composed of men and women with significant financial and real estate experience, leaders in their respective fields. And the technical team appears pretty solid. They're young, of course, like you would expect with blockchain, but solid in the sense that you could imagine that they would be capable of pulling this off. The CTO, for instance, was instrumental in building digital currency exchanges in the past. And as you'll hear in a moment, the team has already completed a somewhat working exchange platform using open source technology, which can be examined in public forums like GitHub. Let's talk about the white paper, though. The white paper is generally the heart and soul of an ICO, and we definitely want to discuss that. So as an ICO white paper, this one comes in at 40 pages, and it's mostly well thought out and sensible, fairly well written, especially as ICO white papers go. A few things stood out. One thing that stood out for me is that there's a work component. People will be able to perform work in the arbitration of disputes in the peer-to-peer -peer rental network and collect fees from their work. Ostensibly, this is currently done by the employees of companies like Airbnb at a great deal of inefficiency. A token mechanism running on a distributed network not owned by any one company will allow these workers to collect money for what they do directly from the network. This kind of concept in an ICO white paper lends credence to the project in general. Another aspect that we like to see in white papers is the ability for token holders to vote to govern the platform. This uh, sort of egalitarian concept is another that should be in an ICO white paper, and it's well expressed in this one. And also the mechanism by which real estate is converted into a tokenized and tradable asset through the use of what is called a special purpose vehicle, followed then by a property token offering, and it makes sense at a technical level. So this white paper shows a good understanding of the strengths of the Ethereum platform itself. And finally, the architecture of the platform is interesting in that there will actually be two platforms set up that communicate to each other securely, the Ethereum platform and the Atlant platform. We're going to go into a little more detail about the platform when we talk about the details of the offering, but this provides a slightly more robust architecture from a technical perspective. In terms of most of the ICOs that we see in this space this particular month, this white paper stands out as being thorough, detailed, and sensible. Let's talk about the roadmap briefly. According to this roadmap, this ICO should have a working beta of the platform by the 7th of September. Uh, this podcast is being produced on September 4th, and I'd say they're pretty close. I personally have successfully logged into their trading exchange, and I'm in the process of being validated. Uh, it's pretty clear that there's plenty more work to do before property could be listed or something like that. 
but uh, they've made some headway, and they seem to be very close to being on track with their roadmap. In terms of schedule, they're pretty ambitious, uh, but I've been watching the GitHub repository grow over the last few days, and I can say that they're clearly capable of uh, producing work. Uh, they plan to have a fully working platform launch by March of 2018 and a P2P rental platform live by April of 2018. So the good news is that there's not a lot of time to wait to see if they can pull this off. And they, again, they certainly get points for having a schedule and a roadmap. And ultimately, they seem to have a team that can execute. Let's talk about the network. Uh, it's the Ethereum network plus Atlant. Uh, now, the Atlant is going to be a uh, proprietary network uh, that's also running on a blockchain. There's going to be secure communication between the two networks. They'll be using the Ethereum virtual machine and the Ethereum network, but they will also launch the Atlant network as well, side by side. And smart contracts will be handling rental contracts, but the management of those contracts will actually be on the Atlant network. And they will also be making use of the platform DAO, and each property will have its own DAO and PTO, like we mentioned before, property token offering. All the certificates and contracts, as well as the transactions, of course, are digitally signed. For the most part, it appears to be a fairly classic use of the Ethereum network along with additional network as well. The... Let's talk about the pre-sale. The pre-sale uh, did occur. Uh, there was a cap of $1.5 million for the pre-sale, and it ended uh, pretty quickly. It's, it started on August 1st, and it ended 19 days later when the $1.5 million cap was reached. The pre-sale doubled the amount of tokens uh, available for one Ether that was invested, and uh, there is a sliding scale for the ICO, which we'll get into in a minute. Let's talk about the offering details. There is a platform token called the ATL, and that'll be eventually traded on exchanges. The structure of the offering, it begins September 7th, and it runs until October 31st, 2017, although I have a feeling it might end sooner. It will end when the cap is reached. It has a soft cap of $1.5 million. We talked about the fact that a cap of $1.5 million was reached during the uh, pre-ICO sale. There's a hard cap of 225,000 Ether, roughly about $76 million. Uh, the original cap was actually higher than that, but they announced a reduction because the rise of Ether in recent weeks. Uh, they're trying to align, it sounds like, to around $76 million as a cap. The total supply of ATL tokens will be limited to uh, $150 million. Uh, and any unsold tokens at the end of the ICO will be burned. Uh, the ICO price, now if you buy before 10% of the tokens are sold, then you're going to get 505 tokens for Ether. They're calling that a bonus. Ether is about $340 for the moment. So if you wait until the last 90% of the tokens, then you'll get about 425 uh, per token. So the range that you may pay for these tokens during this sale is between about 67 cents and 80 cents per token. Okay, it's time for a little bit of a break. Um, in a podcast like this with a lot of dense information, it's good to relax the mind, rest the mind for about a minute. We'll be back uh, momentarily. You can listen to a little bit of music, and we'll be talking about SEC compliance regulations. And thanks for coming this far.
talk about SEC compliance. The first thing to understand is that with respect to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission's website mentions that the first mission is to protect the investor. However, with respect to ICOs, the most important question to really ask is whether the SEC would consider the ICO or the token a security or a security offering in the legal sense. Because if it is, and it's not filed as such with the SEC, then regardless of whether the ICO actually is a security or not, any kind of targeting by the SEC could at least severely impede the progress of the project that you're investing in. So as an investor, it's in our best interest to discern whether or not the ICO would even be considered a security by the SEC in the first place. Now, one of the best ways to do that is the so-called Hawley test. And this is named after a landmark Supreme Court decision decades ago. There's not enough time for me to explain the details of the Hawley test in this podcast, but from my reading of it and my application of it toward the Atlant project, the ATL token would most likely not be determined to be a security for a few reasons. First, speculation is discouraged. In a couple of places in the white paper, it says very specifically, there is, quote, no passive expectation of income solely for holding ATL tokens. Now, the grammar might be slightly off, but the meaning is clear. The idea is that you're not intended to invest in this to hold the security and receive passive income. That's the intent. Second thing, in terms of the Hawley test, is voting rights. So in a couple of places, it's mentioned quite explicitly that voting rights for token holders can make operational decisions for the platform. And in fact, the holding of a token, the use of a token, provides operational benefit. Now, this is expressed in several places in the white paper, from powerful and wide-ranging voting rights to workers actually using the network and running nodes. So this is another point from the Hawley test that reduces the risk that the token would be treated as a security. So in general, putting it through this test, we end up with a score of 30. Now that's deemed unlikely, in quotes, to be treated as a security by the SEC. Of course, it's not perfect. Only the SEC will make that determination. But we can be reasonably assured that there probably will not be any investigation into this project with respect to the offering of a security. Let's talk about the technology for a moment. GitHub, as I mentioned before, is a, uh, a public uh, place where people can store their code in repositories. Uh, and GitHub here shows uh, last check was 15 repositories of code. There was token contracts, pre-sale contracts. There was a couple of clients in Atlant and an ADEX, that's the exchange uh, client. Uh, the code, in generally speaking, the code seems um, standard. The tools that they're using are compliant to the Ethereum platform, things like Web3.js, Solidity, and Go. So uh, there is code, there is technology, uh, there is something to log into. So that's, uh, that's an important consideration there. 
Another really important thing when you talk about these ICOs is community response and anticipation. Now, I would characterize this uh, community response anticipation as fairly significant. The response on Bitcoin talk was generally favorable. The team did a pretty good job of standing up to some probing questions, and it went pretty well. Uh, the best thread, if you're interested to check it out, is the pre-sale thread, not, not really the bounty thread. Just to understand that there's a bounty to help with the marketing uh, that was fairly successful and quite generous, actually. And uh, that thread did not contain a great deal of information or back-and-forth questions, but the pre-sale thread absolutely did. There's a Slack channel. I joined it. There's a lot of activity. A lot of it is positive. Specifically on Bitcoin Talk, there were a, there was definitely some good back-and-forth exchanges. There was a minor quibble with a competing ICO named Relest. Uh, I read both white papers. I can say that there's actually very little comparison between the two, and generally the Atlant team handled themselves quite well with it. On Reddit, there was a complaint that the GitHub uh, leaves a little bit to be desired. The response from the team uh, was that they only deploy to GitHub when the code's fully tested and actually ready to deploy. There's a lot of GitHub repositories that puts uh, just throws code up there just to have code up there. And the fact that uh, their response sounded pretty reasonable to me. And again, on September 3rd, there was an announcement that the exchange was live. In terms of the community, there's also ICO Bench, which is a pretty good uh, site in terms of not a lot of content on ICO Bench, but, but ratings, just general ratings. Most of the significant real estate ICOs are rated there. And actually, this ICO at land comes in at the highest. Last check, it was 4.7, 4.8 stars out of five. So in all, the community response and anticipation uh, was favorable and significant. Not a lot of controversy there. Now, one question very often is whether it's open to U.S. investment. The pre-sale terms indicated that U.S. citizens would not be able to participate, and questions and answers that I saw in uh, BitTalk indicated the same for the ICO. I understand, of course, that as a U.S. citizen, you would have access to exchanges where you can purchase the tokens after the ICO is complete. Uh, so it's not like you won't be able to, to participate in the network itself. Uh, but in this particular case, it appears that this is one ICO that will be initially closed to U.S. investment to the extent that they can validate that uh, during the ICO. Let's talk about a couple of gotchas or a couple of uh, potential issues uh, with this. Uh, first of all, uh, there's that $1.4 trillion transactional volume of real estate on an annual basis. Uh, of course, the implication there was that a, a very small slice of that market share with the fees applied would add up to some pretty big numbers, and they certainly would. Uh, but there is one small aspect of this that needs to be thought of, and that's in the white paper, it mentioned that the listing for real estate assets on the exchange for tokenization and the property token offering and so forth and so on and trading thereof it has a minimum of $20 million per asset. If you think about that, that removes the vast majority of residential real estate on the planet. So it's possible that that $1.4 trillion would be reduced significantly with respect to what would be disrupted with what would be the market share. Right, So if you apply the 1.4 using all kinds of math and this and that, you might come up with almost a billion dollars of valuation just in fees. 
you might come up with something maybe closer to 98 or $100 million if you did the math, just considering the fact that, that there's a $20 million minimum on a specific asset listed. Now, at the same time, you still have the P2P rental market, which is significant, but that's just something to consider. Having said that, I think we should also look at another side. When you think about it, a $20 million minimum may make some sense for a couple of reasons. First of all, what you probably don't want from a social perspective is every three-bedroom and two-bathroom suburban household suddenly deciding that they want to tokenize their property and get it up on an exchange for trading. That would have wide social implications. Uh, Secondly, if you think about the amount of work that it's going to take to create this special purpose vehicle to create a property token offering to bring it onto an exchange and then to actually run the token offering and more importantly bundle all those Ricardian contracts and create all those very special contracts uh, into a machine readable format as well as a human readable format and then inject that into the blockchain all of that is a significant amount of work that ostensibly would be paid for through the listing fee of 7%. So realistically speaking, it's probably not feasible to bring smaller properties onto this platform. You, for instance, wouldn't be able to really bring a $500,000 home or or even a a million-dollar residential piece of property very easily into such a system, considering all of the lingering uh, mechanical and manual legal and administrative actions that have to take place in order to get it to the state in which it could actually join this platform. It's quite possible to imagine that you could do that for something larger, maybe a 20, like they have a 20 million, maybe 10 million, something like that. It makes sense because the fees would be enough to pay for all of that activity. So that's an important aspect. Uh, Another important aspect um, that could be construed as an issue uh, is a competitive one, and that's just simply the news uh, that uh, Airbnb themselves have, in fact, been thinking about blockchain technology. They have not been hiding under a rock. Uh, They've acquired a company that that was using the blockchain. So they're obviously thinking about it. So from a competitive standpoint, if you're going to bank on the fact uh, that this uh, company, Atlant, is going to suddenly snatch away a significant uh, market share from Airbnb, that's probably not the best assumption to make. Having said that, uh, of course, you could argue that there's plenty of pie left. I don't think uh, the success of this project would actually be hinging on destroying or capturing the market share of Airbnb. When there becomes more efficiency and when it becomes easier, in fact, to manage uh, peer-to-peer rentals uh, on on more of a distributed network and using potentially a, a, a tokenization, there may very well be a sudden increase in the total market share of the P2P network, not necessarily a competition for it. 
Another point is that there was a person on Bitcoin Talk who brought up the point that uh, it's difficult to operationally manage real estate through a decentralized mechanism because it's hard enough for people who all live in the same building, even if you consider um, co-ops, to make capital decisions on real estate assets. It might be much more difficult for um, decentralized, maybe even partially anonymous uh, partners in or token holders in a property to make those kinds of decisions from an operational standpoint. And there was a various uh, back and forth, um, pretty good discussion going on between the Atlant team and this individual. And um, I think it might be worth looking at that uh, just in terms of getting the full story of that. Uh, but uh, just wanted to bring it up as, as a potential got you. Uh, that's about it for the gotchas on this one. I'm just going to say the final takeaway on this is that this ICO, it pretty much has all the hallmarks of a professionally planned, responsibly delivered project. Uh, I looked at the competing real estate ICOs, and I, I just don't see anything with this level of depth in their white papers, and as well as the response from the community. Uh, I think generally, I personally would consider this and look even more deeply and uh, consider it as, as a possibility of participating uh, and of course, you'll make your own decision. Okay, and so that is it, Blant. I hope that helped you uh, gain a little bit of visibility into that upcoming ICO. In a minute or so, we're going to start with our second existing ICO and check in and see how they're doing. So let's move on to our uh, second, which is going to be Gollum. We mentioned Gollum in the very first part of this podcast. Now, the Gollum project is a fascinating project that came out almost a year ago. And at its most simple, it answers the question, hey, if we're all connected in a network now anyway, what should we do? with all of this idle computing power sitting on our desktops. And collectively, what would that mean if we were able to tie it all together? I mean, that's sort of the, the grand vision. That's the concept. It's like you go and you buy a chip from Intel or you buy a GPU, a, gra a processing component for processing graphics because you're a gamer and you go to school for eight hours a day, well, that potential energy is being stored somewhere. It's being stored in your chip. It's not being harnessed. What if 
it could be harnessed. What if, in fact, there was the ability to lease that potential power to a network and then receive compensation for it? This kind of concept can only appear in a distributed network. I mean, it's possible, I suppose, to have some aggregate, some centralized authority that collects all of this and then dis distributes it. But this kind of project really is made for a distributed network. And so the idea is that you yourself would download some sort of client and then you would hook it up to the network and you would simply turn on the ability to share your resources. Of course, you could turn it off. Now, to be clear, th this is already being done uh, with respect to certain aspects of cryptocurrency. Uh, for instance, um, one of my kids uh, decided that he wanted to start mining uh, using his GPU. So he had a pretty good GPU, he had a pretty good card, and uh, he is currently leasing out his graphic processor, and he's getting compensated for that in Bitcoin. Now, he doesn't make a tremendous amount, but he's got a pretty powerful graphics processor. So he's making, I don't know, I think maybe $70 a month. And the cost in power to process that, to, to run that processor, is around $16 a month. So it's actually a profitable proposition for a kid. And uh, it may not be scalable, that particular little use case scenario right there, but the Gollum Network uses that concept. And, and that's what's kind of interesting about it. It came out, again, almost a year ago. And I think what we can do now is just uh, take a little bit of uh, statistics about where they are and, and, and what happened in that ensuing year. The Gollum project launched its ICO in November of 2016. Uh, the price of the Gollum token, GNT, by the way, if you want to look it up, traded about a about a penny, about a U.S. dollar penny for quite some time. Right now, it trades at 31 cents. So it has increased um, in value by a factor of 31, which is not a bad investment in terms of that. And the latest word is uh, that there is an alpha version available, a working alpha version. And in fact, there is a video on YouTube. You can look it up, Gollum, how to install the Gollum client. Uh, it's on a Mac. Um, and actually use the product. So it, it does appear possible that someone can join the Gollum network, more or less lease their computing power, and earn test GNT. So uh, product's still in alpha, but it is an apparently a working project where it ties, as you probably know, the CPU cycles uh, and so forth to uh, your ability to contribute to a, a worldwide computer and actually receive benefit from that, actually receive tokens for that effort. So what this tells you, this last thing, is that, uh, you know, you can make money on these ICOs. Uh, factor of 31 is not bad. Uh, but it also tells you that it does take some time to develop a blockchain solution. I mean, uh, Gollum has had uh, quite a bit of money, as you heard earlier, uh, over $200 million, and it's uh, 10 months later, and they've got a working alpha client up and running. 
So that's it for this podcast this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found it useful. Visit us on ICO41.com as well as our YouTube channel and everywhere else, as you know, all the social media channels. Thanks very much. You have a great week and we'll see you next week. Hey, this is Owen Scott with uh, ICO41. First, I want to thank you very much for listening. And secondly, I want you to continue your education. By all means, please look us up at ICO41.com as well as listen to our upcoming podcast. In the next couple of weeks, you'll see it. It's Blockchain 41. You have a great week. Thank you. Oh, and hey, please leave us a review. Love to know what you think. Good or bad, doesn't matter. We're all ears. Thank you.